Welcome to Sparks, a podcast from Ignium, designed to help you reignite your passion and drive your business forwards. Welcome to this episode of the Sparks podcast by Ignium. I'm Phil Rose and I'm your host. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Dr. David Ricketts. David is an innovation fellow at Harvard University. We'll be talking about many subjects, so this episode is split into two to give you a chance to understand more about your business. In this first episode, we'll talk about innovation and how you gain innovative insights and value to customers and implement through leadership. We'll be looking at what a sandwich shop can learn from an F1 pit crew team and how to create a culture of creativity in your business, whilst bearing in mind that no one's taught to be innovative. I'm sure you'll find this episode interesting, and I'm sure you'll have extra thoughts that you can apply to your own business as you work through this. So feel free to leave me your comments, and as always, please give me your reviews at the end of the podcast. So welcome to the Ignium Sparks podcast. Today I'm with Dr. David Ricketts. He's an innovation fellow at Harvard University. Today we're going to be talking about a number of subjects, including simply what is information, but more importantly, how do you create a culture of innovation in a business? We've often looked at how to build a business from ground up to scale it. And we always talk about culture being the number one level before you build on it. So really, you've got to look at how to innovate and you've got to build that culture. So David, thank you for joining us today on the Sparks podcast. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I use that title there, Innovation Fellow. What does that mean? <laughs> so um, uh, at, at Harvard and at, at many uh, universities that are sort of based on the classical, older, actually uh, English universities, the fellow is, is just a, a person who does research uh, on a particular area. And my focus has been on innovation. And it's interesting because I think everybody thinks of themselves as being innovative and wanting to be more innovative and thinks innovation's key. But to do research and innovation sounds a little bit Maybe counterintuitive because it's something we do, it's not something we research. And so a lot of my time has been spent trying to understand who's successful at it, why are they successful? And I think more importantly, how could you or I or other people be taught or learn to be more effective and innovative? Yeah, I think that's, and I think this thing about how can you be teaching people to be or learn to be more innovative? Because when I talk about businesses and, and we talk about growing this culture, the key bit is around how do you get the team to work? And you've got some people in business who are, they love the status quo, and you've got another team who want to be changing, want to be entrepreneurial. So the question I always ask is, what does innovation actually mean for people? Because we, we have a view on it, but what is it? So it's interesting. So first off, I, I uh, was doing a little bit of research and the word innovation really didn't start coming into proper use as it is today until like the 1980s. And so it's a rather modern kind of concept. And I think it's, mm. it comes out of the progression for us as a society that I think is coupled in part with the high-speed acceleration of technology and of digitization. Certainly the web has done this. Uh, um, Jim Steichleather, who was the CTO of, of Dell, you know, described it to me as, you know, we're becoming a frictionless society. So probably yeah. from the 70s with the advent of the personal computer until now, suddenly things are becoming much easier for us to do. And I think that acceleration makes us think more about transformation and the idea of innovation becomes uh, important. I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to answer you in, in, in two ways. Uh, one is, I think, really, why do we use the word innovation? Yeah. And for me, the situation is usually like this. I'm in a company and I'm 
successful to some extent, but I know I need to be someplace far ahead of where I am. I either need to be in a brand new market. I need to be scaling much uh, more faster. Mm. I need to be doing something uh, extraordinary or significantly better than I am today. And I don't know how to go from where I am today to there because the standard practices and processes that I've been doing aren't going to get me. That chasm is going to be solved by innovation. And I think this is where most people use the word innovation. It's the space between the goal we want to get to, where we are today, and we don't know how to get there using traditional means. And so I think that's how it's used. To define it for me, I think innovation is described too too complicated. I think that's one of the things that happens is we try to overcomplicate it. For me, innovation is uh, insight plus value. And so when I teach innovation, I really have people focus on gaining new insights. And I spend a lot of time on defining what insights are. And then that needs to be coupled with two important pieces. I think the other piece for making innovation successful is we have to have vision. Okay. And, and that doesn't seem maybe intuitive, but a lot of us really aren't thinking about future worlds, future markets, future businesses, what they look like. And then the last piece, and I think a lot of your listeners will appreciate this, is innovation doesn't go anywhere without leadership. And, you know, the example I use is the wall of shame is the, the whiteboard or the board with all the post-its on it. And, and you walk out of the room. How many times have we walked out of the room and somebody came in to pull all those post-its off and throw them in the trash? And really, it's about taking those ideas and bringing them out. And so yeah. uh, for me, those are kind of the, the four key areas of insights and value and making sure you have a vision and you're following that up with the right leadership. Yeah. And I love that in sense of that insight. I um, I started my career as an engineer working at Rolls-Royce Aerospace. So we were very much around the forefront of technology, working against or with Pratt & Whitney or General Electric at the time. And the key was very much around how do we create innovation that will sustain us in the marketplace? And one thing I learned very early on as a young engineer was we had to be thinking 30 to 50 years in advance to understand what's the future of aviation. Now, the key was you could never know what it was going to be, but you had to look at how to predict the future. And you use that word insight. Um, from a small business perspective, which is where I now, now work, what would you say is the key things that people need to be aware of to build that insight to help them predict the future? So I think the, uh, the key thing is we look at the world right now in, um, in terms of how we've always looked at it. And the example I like to use is a case study on a sandwich shop. And my friend Rick worked with his sandwich shop and it was a small business and they were trying to improve their, their lunch service. And um, he was trying to get them to see things in a different way. And the problem is, is that in an, in an example of a restaurant where the same thing happens every day, this could be also in a, in a manufacturing facility or in any kind of area where you do much the same thing every day. Everyone who works in the organization sees it exactly the same. And this is the challenge. It's hard to see something different. And so what Rick does is he likes to bring in people who do similar things, but in different areas. And so um, in this specific example, they were trying to make a more efficient lunch service. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Rick thought about who does he know that works with speed and efficiency, but doesn't know anything about sandwiches. And so he actually brought in somebody from a Formula One pit crew. and. Uh, in bringing this person in, they talked about speed and efficiency, and and I sort of understood that, but the insight didn't come until deep in the conversation when they actually watched a pit stop uh, in a video, 
And somebody in the sandwich shop suddenly learned, well, how do you talk to one another with all that noise going on? And the person from the pit crew looked up at them and said, well, there's no talking, of course. Yeah. And the sandwich shop said, well, what do you mean there's no talking? And, and they said, oh, everything has to be communicated using nonverbal. Okay. And that was something that the sandwich shop had never even thought of. Yeah. Lovely. And what they learned was that the nonverbal communication. So first off, we always communicate nonverbally as well as verbally. And so they had only focused on the verbal communication and they found if they switched and focused on the nonverbal, they could actually do things without talking that were more efficient. So hand gestures, how people hand things to, to people. And so here's just an example of sort of how do you get those insights? Yeah. You really have to get out of what you see every day. And I think one of the biggest mistakes people make in innovation that I have made, and, and you, you're an engineer, um, I was working with some material scientists and we wanted to work on a particular problem. And so what we did is we got 10 material scientists in a room and we decided to have a brainstorming session. And, and it, it, it doesn't work. It, 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 it doesn't work when you get all of the same person in a room. And so yeah. um, I know there's a long answer, but really, I just wanted to kind of share an example of you. You really have to find a way to engage outside of your organization yeah. to different people that can help you see things differently because we're all really kind of clouded in that exactly what we see every day because that works. Yeah, and, and interesting, the, the quote that comes to mind is the Einstein quote, that a problem can't be solved at the same level at which it was created. And I think when you talk about material scientists, if you're in the room with that same thinking, you actually have that same output from it. Uh, interesting, actually, I've been part of those pit crews in the Formula One team with Williams Formula One for a materials company who were, who were looking at how do they create innovative graduates on the graduate scheme. Wow. And they found it useful to take them to the Formula One team to actually do that as an exercise and it was fascinating to see what they learned from it. So uh, I can talk all day about those type of things, but that's um, for another story. Fantastic. Um, th this thing about insights, I think, is key, isn't it? Because actually, uh, in businesses, we have to look at how to uh, not just innovate our products and come up with new products, but actually sometimes we need to think about business models. And this word pivot has floated around a lot in the last few years, and no more so than the last nine to 10 months with what we're going for at the moment, where a lot of businesses have to innovate their business model, not just their product. I wonder, what's your thoughts on business model innovation and pivoting your business as opposed to just innovating your product or your widget? So I think business model innovation probably has some of the biggest impact and return for our time there. So I think it's, in some sense, it may be more valuable than, than a single product yeah. to innovate on. Mm -hmm. It's more difficult. And the reason it's more difficult is oftentimes if I want to innovate on a product, I might talk to a user. And there's different levels. I can actually talk to a user. They can tell me what they want, which is sort of a low level of innovation that's kind of uh, just sustaining innovation, commodity products. I might interview them. I might um, do some tools like journey mapping and get some insights into what they need that they really can't tell me. Um, by the way, I just pause here. A great example of that is I do a lot of executive uh, education with companies. And a friend of mine saw me always going back and forth between computers with a uh, USB stick, but my computer has the USB-C, which is the new, and other people had the USB-A. And I had all this difficulty. And one day in the mail just showed up a USB key that has a USB-C and A on it. So I could plug it into mine, plug it in the other. And, and I mean, I'm a pretty bright guy and I just had never seen this, but just by observing me, he had this insight of this guy has this need. So 
with that, you can actually work with a user or customer. When it comes to business models, the challenge is, is it's hard to go out and say to the market, please tell me what it is you need. Let me, let me, mm. let me spend a day with you, Mr. Market, and, and understand where your needs are. Yeah. So I think it's, it's a little bit uh, more abstract, and I think that's why it's more challenging. With that said, I think it can have some of the biggest impact. And I, I did want to share a couple examples with you. Okay. Right. So one I like is with the clothing uh, business Zara. And oh, yeah. so what I loved about them was, you know, we, we had over the past hundred years, you know, we used to shop by mail in the 1800s and then we had the department stores come out. And the idea was we were going to have all this selection. You could come in and see your goods. You could try them on. Um, and we kind of progressed. But it was always in this paradigm of I'm going to figure out what it is you need, what the clothes for the season are going to be. I'm going to stock yeah. my store and that's what it's going to be. What Zara did is they said, look, we are going to stock the store, but we're going to change that stock every week, depending upon how we see our customers needing. Mm -hmm. And the great story is um, lady walks into a Zara store in, in England and says, hey, do you have any pink scarves? And they say, well, we, we don't have any pink scarves. And they're trained in their business model to go log the information pink scarves. Okay. Well, at several other stores that same day and the next day, they noticed people came in and also asked for pink scarves. And they said, well, what do all these people want pink scarves for? And they said, it doesn't matter. Our business model is not to stock with what we think. It's to be responsive. And so they'd set their business model up to be able to restock their stores in a very short time, yeah. they were actually able to source 500,000 pink scarves in seven days. Wow. And they sold out of them in three once they hit the stores. And this was all because their business model wasn't the traditional one. It was about building a business that had the fast turn. And that's how they put together that. Yeah. I, you know, I think that was a that was a great one. Uh, another one I'll just share uh, by way of example is uh, work a lot with MasterCard and they've done some amazing work. Mm -hmm. And you think MasterCard, you think credit cards, um, but a lot of the world is cash-based. Mm -hmm. So how do you build a business model where markets are all cash-based? And they did one in Nairobi where the community is really run by small mom and pop stores that provide all the groceries and goods. Basically, it's your, if you will, it's your Walmart or, or Target in, you know, uh, two square meters. Yeah. And they're all cash based. And so what they found was that they couldn't grow. An, an example was I could sell 10 packs of diapers every week, but I can only afford to buy five from the distributor. Okay. So what they need is a loan or some credit, but they're all cash based. They don't bank. And they were struggling with how to solve this. And then they, they pivoted from this mindset of we're going to look for credit from the person who's going to sell the goods. And they backed up and they said to the distributor who brings the diapers to them, do you have records? And they said, yes, of course, we have lots of records of the shipping and, and what we sell them every month and, and their payments. And they said, well, why don't we use your records as the distributor? And the distributor in this example was Unilever. Okay. Why don't we use your records? to establish credit for that particular store and we'll set up a loan or facilitate a loan program for them to do that. And so this was a pivot from the focus on the mom and pop shop where their business model yeah. wouldn't work to, to one that was there. So there's just two examples of finding a way to create the value. I think one of the things that really surprises me is oftentimes when I wanna do something, the funding isn't direct. And so I find 
you know, the question is who's going to pay for this. When, when you do research, for instance, it's always, well, you know, we can go to the, some grant writing agency, but sometimes they're just not there. So how do you pay for the research or pay for what you want to do? And sometimes it's not obvious uh, how we do it. Yeah. You have to figure out a new business model. Wage around it. And, and the, the interesting thing that came to mind when you talk about that is uh, in MasterCard, or and you mentioned Unilever, you expect that they've got creative people there. But the mom and pop business or the small business or the startup, startups have it. But what about the, the business which is growing and they've, they're fixed in their ways? We talk about cultural creativity, but how do people, when they're fixed in the ways, suddenly get creative? Coming back to your team about material scientists earlier, if they're stuck doing the same job all the time, they have to come out of that mindset and think differently. But if they don't know what they don't know, sometimes they're stuck. I wonder what's your thoughts on helping businesses encourage their teams and the individuals to step up and become creative. So I think there's a there's a couple of things that I've I found very effective. The first one is you should allow those who are creative to come forward. Love it. Yeah. And and so this is something that uh, I was actually taught by the um, chief information officer for Washington D.C. And so she took over for an organization. I think it was six hundred or a thousand people, and they had a small innovation team, and they were the people who innovated, and not everybody else. And she found that wasn't okay. very effective, so she disbanded the team, and then she just said, "Look, we're going to have uh, an innovation meeting at six p.m. second Tuesday of every month. You're welcome to attend." Just open. Mm-hmm. What that did was she found people from all over the place came out of the woodwork, per se, to, to, to join this meeting. And she found 30 people who in the organization she would have never known wanted to be innovative, wanted to be creative. And that was sort of the low hanging fruit that we don't do. Um, yeah. And I think you could really kind of instill upon that. I think we have to understand there's also a spectrum of people who want to engage. Some people feel really safe in doing the same kind of expert work they've always done. Some feel really good being kind of creative and out there. So there's a little bit of a balance. But first is pull out those who want to. Yeah. Um, the next piece is is getting everyone to realize that their expertise is a hindrance in solving new problems. And here's just a simple example that uh, I use when I when I teach executive education classes uh, for companies. Um, so here's the problem. It's a little bit of a math problem. Um, how many cubic meters of dirt are in a hole 10 meters by two meters by three meters? 10 by two by three. Yeah. Okay. So so roughly 60, 60 cubic meters. Now you're an engineer, aren't you? Or you were an engineer by training, yes? Yeah. Okay. Now, if you listen carefully, I said, how many cubic meters of dirt were in a hole? Okay. There's none. Okay. There was, there's none in the hole originally. None in a hole. Yeah. So what's interesting is, is when we do this, anyone with a technical background immediately goes to the figures to do the calculation. Yeah. Yeah. Human resources, accounting, not accounting, that's human resources and uh, lawyers are the ones that typically get this right first. Yeah. And so the first thing is, is to kind of show, look, um, you're really skilled at what you do and that makes you solve problems you're used to. Yeah. Let's start looking at a few problems that you can't solve. And then slowly people start to realize, I mean, really, I say, look, if you're an expert and the problem is like you're an expert in um, you may not need innovation. Innovation is not a tool to replace being an expert. Innovation is a tool of where it happens when you get to a point where you can't, you can't uh, solve it. You got to come up with something new. And I think yeah. that gets people to start to realize, okay, innovation is a tool I can use. And that gets people to be open to mm-hmm. um, 
training. By the way, I think one of the pieces that leaders and companies don't realize is no one is taught how to innovate. There's no, in even in today's modern schools, there's really no program on, okay. uh, this is how you innovate, this is how you be creative. And so your people don't have the skills. Interesting. And you know, every once in a while, you'll find people who naturally have it, um, but you need to start with, you know, they were taught how to you know, design a bridge. They were taught how to uh, have, give great customer service or make sales, yeah. but they weren't taught to, to innovate. So the first piece is I think leadership can do is understand that's something that we have to proactively teach. Yeah. Yep. And in the end, um, you have to set up some metrics as a leader that encourage innovation and they, they aren't very difficult at all. So some of the things that I, I recommend is uh, ask your people, yeah. you know, in the U.S., we do performance reviews quarterly or annually. Yeah. Um, you know, you can ask the question of of what new ideas did you present to the company that you weren't asked to present? Okay, interesting. Okay, yeah. And and then people say, well, I, I did everything you asked. And I think that's one of the challenges is is right now we manage with I tell you what to do, I set expectations, you meet those. Mm-hmm. We need to start saying, okay, how did you go beyond that? Um, and we really don't want to give a lot of criticism, whether it was a good or a bad, but we start that kind of ideas. And so um, Los Angeles, uh, the, the um, city actually wanted to build a culture of innovation. And one of the things they started to do was in the performance reviews, they started having a section on innovation. Yeah, I love it. And it's very simple, but if you start to have that as an expectation, the other thing uh, that San Jose did, yeah. uh, they're, run, um, they're run by a lot of, of tech guys, uh, is they started hiring in people. And one of the criteria for hiring new people was that they scored high on sort of an innovation scale. And they found that they pulled the organization towards that. And so that's another way that we can do that. Yeah. So there's just some, some effective tools I've seen. Yeah. And I love that in terms of actually building that culture of innovation and I have a phrase, what you measure is what you get. So if you're measuring creativity, you're going to get it. But you've, you've got to put that into the mix in the first place because if people aren't aware they're needing to bring it forwards, they're not going to do more with it. I just want to back up slightly in terms, you mentioned about no one's taught innovation. Uh, I, I find this interesting in the sense that having done an MBA best part of 20 years ago now, you're right, innovation was not on the syllabus at that time. We didn't talk about it, but we had to come up with creative ideas for doing things. I work as a coach now, and a lot of people come to me with issues or problems. And to help them solve their issues, my belief is they've got all the resources they need within them to do that themselves. They just haven't asked themselves the right questions. So I'm wondering in that case, when you're looking at creativity, what's the questions you need to ask in the organization? Apart from looking at performance reviews, what's the questions you need to ask specifically to say, how do we do something different? How do we find a new way that's not just incremental, this evolutionary, if that's what's needed? So one of the things that I teach is um, decision-making. What do you decide to work on? What, what ideas do you choose? Yeah. And so uh, the traditional one is sort of a, a Venn diagram of feasibility, desirability, and viability. And you kind of look for the intersection of those three. You know, okay. you know, can we make it? Should we make it? Is it part of our strategy? And that, that makes good business sense. Yeah. When we come to creative ideas, uh, once again, my friend Rick taught me this. He says, look, he said, get rid of feasibility and viability and just focus on desirability. Is it something that is interesting and cool? And so oftentimes when we work with executives, we'll ask them to choose problems 
that just seem really interesting, really cool, really different and exclude any feasibility as part of that. So that's one of the first things that we can do because a lot of times we don't, we don't focus in mm-hmm. that, uh, that area. The, the other two things that I'll share with creativity is um, the one is we want, we want creativity to be new ideas that are, are valuable or that are relevant. I don't know how many of you have been listening here, have been on a, a brainstorming session and, and you, know, you can say anything you want. People start going way off topic to, to be creative. That's not really being creative. It's kind of just being disruptive, if you will, in a, in a negative way there. Uh, so what we want to do is kind of find ways that people can think about new ideas that are relevant to the work. And that's why analogies and you know, the sandwich shop example I gave were, were, were really great. Yeah. The other one is some research out of Harvard Business School. Uh, Teresa Mobile did uh, research exclusively on creativity and productivity in organizations. Okay. And she has the following test. And I'm just going to paraphrase here. So which of the following do you think best predicts uh, employee satisfaction and their creativity? Uh, Rewards and incentives. Clear goals. Resources. Progress in their task. Or uh, support by their coworkers. So rewards and incentives, clear goals, resources, progressing the tasks, and support from the co-workers. Yes. Interesting, actually, because uh, my, my, my initial would go towards rewards and incentives. And that is where most people go. Yeah. Uh, but now that you, you, you feel like that may be not the one where we're targeted at, which would be your next one that you yeah. go to? Yeah. So, so I'm wondering, in that case, you've got to have the support to do things. So actually the resource around you. Okay. Great. That's, a, an, that's another coaching. great one. Yeah. Um, but not the right one. <laughs> uh, no, surprisingly, uh, her research has shown that it is the progress in the task. Wow. Okay. And the reason is, is that creativity comes from intrinsic motivation. Okay. Not the extrinsic reward. Yeah? yeah, that's right. So there, there is no way to force someone to be creative. And I think this is what's important because we described it before, let people who are creative come forward. You need to allow people to bring that creativity out. And the example that I like to use is um, a puzzle book. Now, imagine I, I gave you a, a puzzle book of mazes and I said, I'll give you, you know, $100 for um, tracing out from, from the in to the output yeah. for every page. Yeah. And most people would be like, okay, well, I'll do one and I'll go to the next page, I'll go to the next page. And then I said, okay, when you're done, how many of you would go back to the first maze and look if there was a second way to go through it when you don't get paid? And the answer is only someone who had fun doing mazes. And so creativity, a lot of times, yeah. is finding alternative solutions for things and people tend to do this when they're having fun. And so that's yeah. why I think it's important. You know, if, if you're a small to medium-sized company, let's say you've got 50 people in your company, you, you might try to find the five or six that are really excited about the topic you want more creative ideas about and work with them. And maybe a different topic you want to work on. So maybe, maybe it's a sales or marketing strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there's a different set a group that you would work on a technical solution. But that's why letting people volunteer for kind of these groups is really uh, is, is really good. And I think that's an important piece. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just as an aside for a management strategy, uh, I have found, and the example I use is, how many of you enjoy cleaning? Because when you clean, it's clean at the end. 
And that's exactly what Teresa Mabale is teaching is, I mean, that's a simple task, but really the enjoyment comes from the, I've made progress and succeeded. Yeah. And, and that's where everybody in the organization wants to be. And I think as a, as a leader, if we can make people feel like they are making progress and succeeding, then they feel good about themselves. And I'll have to say, when I do research, one of the most frustrating pieces is I'll go week on week after week after week, realizing I'm not making any progress. And, uh, and that's probably the most frustrating part of it all. Yeah. And, and, and the, the segue I think really is really key there, actually, David, is around purpose and engagement. We often talk in business around, you know, why and looking at what's the purpose. A lot of our work is actually now around how do we grow the value of a business? And one of the key things around is linking it to purpose. And the business that I run at the moment is very much around helping people find a purpose above and beyond making money. Because if you can engage people in your why, that isn't just about making money, people will willingly come to work. They'll work with their hearts, minds, blood, sweat, and tears, not just for your cash. So they're going for the intrinsic rather than the extrinsic, because right. money only gets you so far. And, and the fascinating bit, what you're saying there is actually, you said having fun is key. Because I think in a business context, actually, people want to come to work and have fun. Now, not everybody can do that because they haven't got the choice to do it. Or they have, but they haven't realized that. But when you're in a business where you can come to work and have fun, when you can deliver something that's of value and help people do something useful to society, you get more engaged people. I'm wondering whether there's a correlation there between those type of businesses and innovation at some stage. And I don't know the answer. I'm just throwing that out there. Um, no, I, I will have to say that. Uh, so <laughs> um, there's a, a popular band. It's called OK Go. And and they've sort of pivoted on the the traditional model. You know, we used to have bands that we'd go see in live, and then you know yeah. MTV came along, and we we'd have all these music videos. Well, they went even further, and they basically do a video. Usually, it's like a Rube Goldberg machine. It's some crazy video. In one of them, they exploded like five hundred things in four seconds. And then what they do is they play the video in slow motion, and then they play their music to the video. And the cool part, the music's decent, but the cool part is, is the juxtaposition and this cool video that they've done. So it's really about this creative idea of, of the video. And they uh, asked the head of OK Go, you know, where does he get his ideas? And he says, you know, when I was a kid, I put everything up on my wall uh, in my bedroom and I would actually close one eye or the other, take my hand and block out part and try to connect different things. Yeah. And what I found was you don't have a good idea, you find a good idea. And I think this is one of the really important things about innovation is innovation yeah. doesn't happen. Yeah. You just don't sit there and a good idea comes to you. I think this is one of the challenges with Zoom right now is we don't have the interactions we used to. So it's much harder, I think, to be creative. But for innovation, you have to go out and seek. And so I think when you talk about the purpose-led people, they're looking to accomplish a goal, they're looking to push forward, they're looking to discover and solve new problems. And that's where the innovation uh, uh, happens. And, and I just kind of want to share a, a case example mm -hmm. uh, from my innovation class at Harvard. We had a, a gentleman who came in from... Um, New Jersey, uh, Philadelphia is right next to New Jersey, and and he was doing uh, supermarkets. He, he wanted to do a public service, and they have what they call food deserts in poor areas. And a food desert is okay. the area is too poor for a major retailer to put a, a supermarket or a grocery in. So what you're left with are small stores that don't really have all the food selection or the nutrition. And so it's a kind of you spiral out, you know, wow. uh, a dad has to take a bus for an hour to get to a real supermarket. 
uh, can't just go down to the street corner. And so in these food deserts, he wanted to open up a supermarket. And this is a great story of innovation is the first thing he did was he did a town hall with the residents at a church and said, look, um, what would you guys like? And they started with the initial superficial things. Look, we don't like supermarkets that have bars on the window because you're telling us that we're all thieves. Um, you know, we don't like it that you have an ATM with a high service charge for us. We don't like it that, you know, you're only stocking the things that you think can make the most money on. You're not stocking the stuff that, that we need. And they went through the superficial ones and they found things, for instance, in a lot of the neighborhoods in, in Philadelphia, there was a lot of ethnic diversity. And so they needed halal foods. They needed, um, mm. Uh, there's a large Ethiopian uh, uh, population. There's specific Ethiopian grains that they were interested in having. And these, you know, weren't traditional. So you opened up a supermarket and you go inside of the supermarket and suddenly you see they have a diversity of products that really speak to what the people want. And they have a variety there. They realize that health is a problem. So they actually have a, a nutritionist that will help people put together dinners. And so that was great. But he had such a passion for helping these people that they sat down and they said, what else do you need? And they said, well, what do you mean? The supermarket's great. Beyond the supermarket. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we're having a lot of trouble banking. And he says, well, what are your problems? He goes, well, I don't have a bank account. I can't cash a check. I go to the money cashing place, has a high charge. And so what they did is they worked on a way using some digital technology to get a bank in there that would allow anyone to open up a, an account for no fee. And so now they had a place to bank. Oh, yeah. And then what he realized was a lot of people could get money, but didn't know how to get it from the, from the, uh, the government. So they opened up a social services office in the supermarket that allowed people to come in and they would teach them how to fill out the paperwork. Uh, in the U.S., we have things called food stamps and other support programs and how they could get their benefits. But this was really just going back to your purpose driven. A lot of the innovation uh, was around him asking people what they wanted. And so now it's not, in essence, if we go back to Nairobi, this, this, this kind of mom and pop two square, and when I say two square meters, I literally mean two square meters or how big the shops are. It's literally a door and a, you know, a little couple bookshelves in there. That's what this, uh, you know, this place has become. It's become the place where the community uh, goes to. And so anyway, it's a long case yeah. study, but fascinating on how that need and purpose drove uh, a lot of different innovations. Yeah, yeah, and, and I love it in the sense that they're, they're they're looking at what else, but the key is asking the customers what they need, and and part of that is giving them them the space because sometimes people don't know what they need. Um, yeah, twenty years ago we used to use the the Walkman case study from Sony, right? That nobody knew they needed a Walkman until Sony produced this thing, right? And we all had one in the I'm going back a few years now in the eighties, effectively. Yes, but actually that was the product innovation that said, okay, we can carry our music around with us. And I think if you'd asked the customer, they probably wouldn't have known they needed it. And on that note, we conclude this episode of the Sparks podcast. I'm sure you'll agree this has been a fascinating and information-loaded conversation. I'm grateful for Dr. Ricketts for his insight into the world of innovation and creativity. We'll be back for more in the next part, part two. We're always looking for ideas on how to drive this podcast forward. So if you've got comments, please leave them via a review of our show, along with your rating or send us an email to sparks at avmconsult.com.